This is the Talk Theater in Chicago interview podcast. I'm your host this week, Ann Nicholson Weber, and I'm here with Hans Fleischmann, Joanne Dubach, and Walter Briggs. Um, Hans is the director of the production of The Glass Menagerie, Tennessee Williams play being produced at Mary Archie Theater. He also plays Tom. Joanne uh, plays Laura, and Walter plays Jim. Not with us is Maggie Kane, who plays Amanda. This is a production that's getting um, huge critical attention and audience buzz. It's a very interesting, um, freshly imagined take on a on a wonderful old play that many of us know really well and welcome seeing through a fresh lens. So Hans, maybe you could just, um, as the director and presumably the conceiver, mm-hmm. um, talk a little bit about uh what it is that makes this production seem unusual and where the idea came from and, and maybe a little about what you were hoping to achieve with it. Uh, what's different about this production is that we've set Tom as a homeless man literally in an alley in St. Louis. Right. Um, we've a lot of shows, a lot of productions. Uh, the focus is kind of um, on Amanda and Laura, the mother and the sister, uh, and how they're broken characters. And Tom goes back and tells you why he left. Um, we kind of put a darker spin on what happens afterwards mm-hmm. to Tom. And we make him just as broken and just as dark and just as delusional as the mother and sister in that. Right. Yes, most productions don't make a... You don't know really where the narrator is when he's talking to you. It's kind of in a vague, you know somewhere else um, yeah there's place a, right he's melodramatic he kind of comes back he's sad uh we've stripped him of everything a lot of people also believe that tom is tennessee williams which is valid mm-hmm. it's he's based it off his life um we so that kind of because tennessee williams was successful uh the narrator in a sense becomes successful mm-hmm. um, but it's not tennessee williams it's based off of experiences he had Right. But changed. Well, and the script tells us that Tom, what, joined the Merchant Marine and that he... And Tennessee Williams would never have joined right. the Marine. <laughs> right. So you've just taken then that future life of the narrator a little further and yeah. said he joined the Merchant Marines and then he fell apart and now he's homeless in the alleys. And well, it's Louis. debatable if you even joined the Merchant Marines. Ah, uh, that could know, have been delusion. That, that was a dream that he had when right. he achieved it. Right. You know. And so... You know, did you like wake up in the middle of the night one night and say, Ooh, that's interesting? Or did you just approach the play and as you were work, cause you, did you decide to do the play before you had the concept or did you have the concept no, and I, then decide to do I decided the play? to do the play with a darker concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really wanted to kind of, there was things that I wanted to do. I didn't have the homeless thing, uh, down until I was researching the play and I had read that Tennessee Williams was homeless. And I had known that Laura was schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. Um, Rose, his sister, was schizophrenic, and of, the whole play is a tribute to her. Right. Um, I had been reading about this, and when I heard he was homeless, it was like it was interesting. I kind of stored it away. Had read. At the what schiz- point in his life was he homeless? I don't know. I couldn't find the exact article, mm. and I don't imagine him being homeless. Homeless. Right. I he think was homeless sleeping on a friend's couch or I something. I think that's yeah, right. what they meant. <laughs> right. Tennessee Williams kind of surfed couches. Right. Of friends while he was, you know writing uh, right, right but someone had written homeless and it just kind of got lodged in my brain right now and i had been living uh on the streets of hollywood not on the streets but in a camper uh-huh. and i had been reading this and this guy kept walking back and forth on the sidewalk 
just talking to himself. And uh, I, well, I didn't know he was talking to himself. I thought he was on the cell phone. <laughs> and it was just driving me nuts. And, and I got out of the car and uh, or the van or the trans van, as it's called. And uh, and it was a schizophrenic homeless guy. Uh-huh. And I just went, oh. And I just called Rich right away. Uh-huh. And I said, like, everything just... I thought about it for like five minutes, and I went, this is really good. Well, let's go back one step then, because you're out in L.A. You had at least um, some television work. You had been here mm-hmm. 10 years. How long ago were you at the producing? Uh, four years ago. Four years ago. Oh, so it's not as, not as long as I thought. No. Um, and then how was it that you had decided to direct this play here when you were out there? I've been wanting to do this play for a while, and I wanted to take a break uh, the summers are really dead in LA. Mm. So I wanted to come back in the summer and do a show. And, uh, I pitched doing Glass Menagerie to Rich years ago. And we're talking about Rich Katowski. Rich Katowski, yeah, artistic, yeah, the artistic director. director. Right. Um, so I pitched it to him, uh, but I didn't have a concept. I just knew that I wanted it to be different. Uh-huh. Uh, I, uh, I pitched it to him. It, we never really went through with it. And I knew that I was too young because one of my pet peeves, with this production is when people do Tom in his late 20s and you never have an idea that he's going back into memory. Right. So the idea of actually Rich Gutowski playing Tom as this older looking guy going back into his past, perhaps even older than his mother, was really appealing to me. Yes, yes. So I kind of started with that idea and then I went, oh, wait a second, I'm old now. <laughs> I could do this. Uh-huh. So then the idea for me to do it, especially when I started getting all the ideas and, and then a lot of work that I did before we started rehearsal, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, made sense for me to do it. And my ego just really, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> keep, keep that. There's always, um, I think, a, a, a real difficulty when you're directing yourself, right? I mean, you don't have that other pair of eyes on your work as the actor. Yeah, that's really difficult. A lot of the, a lot of our rehearsal periods kind of, I didn't even rehearse myself, all the, the narration and stuff. And then I joined the cast on stage for some of the run throughs, uh, after a few weeks of rehearsal. It was embarrassing. It was just, they were, (laughs) they were, they were directed and they were working on stage in front of people. And I just had no idea what I was doing. Um, so it was a bit difficult. Rudy Galvan is our assistant director for the show. Mm-hmm. So he was another pair of eyes for me. Mm-hmm. And he was also, like, he would jump on stage and do scenes with the actors. Uh, when but, you were being a director. Yeah, well, I could say the lines from the audience and mm-hmm. watch him move. So you could see my it. movement on stage. Right. So I could see it, right. which was extremely helpful. Right. Um, and because of the way we do things uh, in our play, we have, you know, there's a different, we have two different versions. Uh, so we had to kind of... Uh, it's, what do we call it? It's conceptual. What do we call this? What are you talking about? Two different versions. I'm talking versions. Uh, about, uh, our forward facing audience address. Right. During the, uh, I was just going to come to that because the, the frame story of Tom being homeless is, is certainly an important element of this production. And in some ways it's kind of the jazzier element that people can talk about. But I feel like that choice, um, uh, it stylistically, at the beginning, and as you say, there through through much of the beginning, through much of the first act, the actors, even in scenes together, aren't addressing each other. They're addressing the audience in a very stylized way. Focal points. Focal points. Mm-hmm. And what explain what you mean? Um, we're not talking to the audience. Ah, we're, uh, I see what you're saying. We've 
um, picked out focal points to represent the different characters that we are talking to. Right. And we react to the focal points as if we're talking. So it's not, you're saying it's not direct address to the audience. It's just as if a camera were taking a different angle on the character so that we as the audience are seeing not just profile, for instance, but as if we were your interlocutor. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And when you say camera, that's mm-hmm. that's kind of, this whole play has got movie references, film references, and that's one of the reasons that we do the stylized blocking. Um, it allows kind of the audience to edit similarly to film and television. Right. Uh, where you could see someone take information as well as give it. Right. Um, it also allows the audience to choose which one they want to see. Do they want to see the aggressor? Do they want to see... You know, whatever they want. I was listening, right, right. Well, it does create um, uh, a certain alienation. I mean, it's a different uh, response from the audience to seeing two people talk to each other, right? It becomes much more dreamy, much more stylized, much more expressionist. I don't know exactly what the right adjective is. Now, my my very foggy memory because I when I try to remember production I mostly just remember how I felt mm. <laughs> throughout it yeah. not so much what actually I saw that's a good thing but my um my impression is that that convention began to wear away after some point in the first act I couldn't tell you exactly when and that it became a more um immediate relationships between the characters over the course of the play is that is that yeah, true that's exactly right but um what we do is kind of, we give, similarly uh, to that guy that I saw on the street talking to himself, the homeless guy, uh, we kind of, we show you a bit of, of that. Um, there's, that's in it as well, that kind of schizophrenic image of a, of a man dealing with memories. Mm-hmm. And we kind of take the audience and show you the slices of what he's remembering, mm-hmm. uh, or Tom does. Right. Um, as the audience kind of goes on that journey with Tom, uh, they get deeper and deeper. And uh, before long they're in the play and they're in tom's memory and they're living it with him Uh so we abandon the concept right and go is there a particular moment when it stops and what is that moment and why um we stop right uh we stop right before the second act Uh and uh and it's a very important line it's uh i'm going to the movies which is echoed throughout the entire play right and uh but it comes after it comes at a moment where Tom's not fighting his mother as much, uh-huh. and there's there's a bit there's a bit of a connection there. There's and a physical grab. There's, there's a physical grab. They touch each other. They touch each other, uh-huh. and, and then suddenly we're in a more uh, we're more completely immersed in the world rather than fragmented perceptions mm-hmm. of it. Is that and, is yeah, that fair? That, no, that's exactly fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the same thing happens with Laura shortly after, mm-hmm. where they connect, and it's 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 all a build up on, until the gentleman caller. Um, right. Tom says that he's the most realistic character in the play. The gentleman caller. The gentleman caller. So as we kind of hear of his approach, Mm -hmm. things start to become real. One thing that has never struck me about this play until I saw this production is that the whole scene that we're going to now talk about, which is the scene between Laura and the gentleman caller, played by Joanne and by Walter, um, Tom's not there. Tom, our subjective... Uh, that, that subjectivity through which we're seeing all this action. So it, he couldn't have a memory of this scene. He wasn't there. He didn't know what happened, which had never struck me before. Um, and somehow what this production did was succeed in putting me so much 
in the awareness of the fact that this is all Tom's head, that then suddenly that was like, whoa, wait a minute, how does Tom know what happened? But the other thing that it did for me, and again, one of the reasons I want to talk about um, the extended scene in the second act between Laura and the gentleman caller, Jim, um, is it made it really moving and beautiful in a way that that scene has never seemed so pivotal pivotal to me as it did in this production. And part of that, I will just editorialize to say, is because of how beautifully acted it is. Mm, um, it really was beautiful acting. Um, but I also wanted to talk about how you rehearsed that scene, what choices you made, how the context that um, Hans had set up around it affected the work you did. Um, so, I don't know, Walter, you're nodding, which means maybe you've got something to say. <laughs> um, I guess we would start with, I mean, well, Hans and I talked a lot about how, like, I think we, we thought that Jim is not, you know, I mean, he can come across when you're reading the pages that he's sort of just like this happy guy and life is great and, you know, and, mm. but we talked a lot more about, like, there's a lot more underneath him that he, um, that he puts on lots of covers and, mm. um, and, you know, he, and I think the nice thing about the scene is as, as, uh, it goes along, we, we both sort of remove layers throughout, mm -hmm. you know, it's not just Laura opening up, it's like, she has Jim open up to be more of who he, I think he really is deep down. And, um, we talked about a lot of, I mean, we talked about like, puts his foot in his mouth, he's one of those guys that, uh, that's always like telling you what you should do, but uh -huh. maybe, you know. But he doesn't actually sometimes take his own advice, but he knows exactly what you should do. Right. But, um, so we played around, yeah, we played around with a lot of that. And I also looked at a lot of like just what his actual life is. And maybe, you know, this moment here awakes him to, um, to seeing like what potential like other parts of his life could be or where his past could go differently. You know, mm -hmm. he's so set in what he wants to do, but what this awakes him to, you know, I don't know where he goes afterwards. Maybe he, you know, his life might not be so happy as like, people think later on. So it's interesting you say that because to me, he's always seemed a very disappointed guy. He's a yeah. guy he, who looked like he was going to make good, and so far it's not at all clear that he yeah. is or will. Yeah. Um, and part of his attraction to Laura, the way you two played it, the way I saw it, was that she helped him to see himself as heroic again in a way that he maybe hadn't since, mm -hmm. since high school. And as his... You know, and as his like, uh, as him not being a, um, I don't know, he's he's heroic in high school, but she sees him still heroic as like kind of a failure at times, and I think that's even more beautiful. Is, explain that. Like he, uh, I mean, I think she unnerves him to a point where like he's nervous and he's like, uh, oh, I said you, you know mean. what yeah. I mean? So, yeah. But like she still accepts him for that, and she's like listening to him. Right, his bravado kind of falls yeah. apart, falls away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. Um, and so, I mean, you all, well, L Laura plays both acts. I mean, Laura's in both acts. Joanne plays both acts. <laughs> so you have to make that tr transition maybe more than any of the other actors from the, the more stylized, um, uh, presentational style of the, the first act and then to this very, what seemed to me very naturalistic acting of this scene. Um, so talk about that. That seems like an unusual situation for an actor to have to shift styles through the course of a single play and in the same role. Um, I, uh, I think it's a, it was a great challenge and it's a lot of fun. Um, it's, uh, it's fun to exchange glances 
with someone who is standing next to you and exchanging glances with you, but neither of you are looking at each other. Uh-huh. Um, it kind of feels like giving yourself a high five. Uh, <laughs> and then, um, and then, uh, going into the second act feels, um, it's a relief to uh-huh. be able to act and see the people that you're acting with. Right. It's easier. It's way easier. Yeah. And yeah. also it's, um, uh, it's a lot, it's, yeah, it's easier. It's easier. You're not concentrating so hard on, um, on giving and receiving. I mean, we still do give and receive really when we're standing next to each other, but it, your concentration is just so intense to try to, to try to do it. Cause you have to kind of just sense like with your skin, what, <laughs> what they're doing, what they're doing. You do. And, yeah. and planned in our like cl- carefully planned moments that mm-hmm. we have. Um, and sometimes an audience reaction will tell you that you nailed it. And sometimes an audience reaction will tell you that that was way off. Uh-huh. <laughs> you guys did not catch that. And, um, and just, just let's make sure that uh, a listening audience can, can picture this because it's really quite important as you talk mm-hmm. about it. So, um, say you're playing with your mother, Amanda, and the two of you are both facing out to some degree, mm-hmm. rather, but you're clearly addressing each other in real life, so to speak. You would be, in fact, facing each other, but we're seeing both of you from front. Now, you are you said you use a focal point, so you don't look at some audience member. You look at you know, the doorknob in the back of the theater or something. Yeah, but and, if an audience member is in front of it, I look at uh-huh. wherever that would be. Right, and then are you picturing um, Amanda's face mm-hmm. and actually kind of projecting out what you imagine her response to what you're saying. Well, we rehearse. We rehearse. Well, we rehearse, actually. Uh, part of the rehearsal process was actually rehearsing with the other person as though we were actually doing the scene. Right. Then we would get all that stuff ingrained in our brains and then do it again uh-huh. with the focus blocking. And then and then it's like memory. You're just remembering mm-hmm. what it yeah. looked like, what it felt like. We check back in with each other. We mm-hmm. still, a lot of times, will just before a show, like make eye contact and do all of our lines so it becomes real to us. Yeah. You know, so that right. we can do that. Right. Yeah. And there's another um, aspect of this show, which Hans was talking about before we started the interview, that I would think contributes to a certain um, carefulness that you have to have in that part of, in that uh, first act, which is the timing of the music. And Hans, could you talk just a little bit about that and why you made the music such an important element and how that evolved? Uh, well, the music's really important in the play. Tennessee Williams, he writes about, uh, he has a great line where the music is sort of like carnival music in the distance. Mm-hmm. It's the saddest music in the world. Uh, I knew that I needed a composer for the show. There were things, that, like we talked about, uh, about this, there's something really filmatic about about this show. Uh-huh. And and Tennessee Williams was way ahead of his time to com- put a score to a play like this and, and the screen images, uh, which I imagine we'll get to. Right. Um, and uh, so having a composer was really important to me. And uh, we found Daniel Knox, uh, Carlo Garcia, our producing director, found Daniel Knox, and uh, we pitched him the idea, and we were so lucky that he actually agreed to come on board. Uh-huh. Um, and he's just an amazing composer. He composed some some breathtaking music for this production. And how much of it is underscored? Is it again? This is I just have an impression. I couldn't um, tell you. The 
I had gone through the script and, and picked out moments that I wanted to have an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and kind of found moments that, uh, that I thought were very important. And I think a lot of times when there's important moments, we're so used to film, mm-hmm. uh, telling us what's important by having the score. And I have no complaints with that. I love film. Um, so we did it with this and some of it had to change and we had to kind of tweak it. Um, but I kind of, but you were really looking on it like a soundtrack. I really was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I, I kind of gave the example of there's so many films. I need Forrest Gump just, or any, any film actually. It's just, could you picture any film that we love today? It's almost every single one of them yeah. without the music. It yeah. would not be the same. Not be the same, right. Yeah. But it creates, it creates obviously challenges in the live theater because, oh, yeah. um, a soundtrack to the movie is scored to the, Images, Later on. right? Later on, yeah. You guys essentially have to perform to the music, right? That was very challenging. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think. I mean, one of the things. First off, I, I take a second usually just to forget about that. The, there's music playing, like the, the, when my music comes in. I think I'm the "You're Pretty" line. Um, I just take a second to to forget about that and uh, and then just go on with the dialogue because I, I know watching it. It's different than a movie where, like, you know, this was scored later and stuff right. like that. But like having that plan, it might feel melodramatic, um, and you don't want it to go there, and you still want it to be real and natural. So, like, try to forget about the music. But then you have to remember that we want to get to this moment in the song, like on this perfect moment. And so, like, sort of, we we sat on the couch and played the music and did our. I think we went through every monologue. Yeah. And went through every monologue and sort of got the timing. So the timing of the songs are actually built to the way we were going to do this speech with like little room for... So the composer adjusted yeah. the recording to fit into what you were doing. I mean, he came in with one and then we worked with it and then mm-hmm. we'd add seconds or, or things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of it was recorded in the studio uh, before we even started rehearsal. Uh, and so some of it... Luckily, Daniel Knox recorded uh, different versions, so we could reach for something longer I see. or mm-hmm. shorter. Mm-hmm. But that only worked for maybe half the time. Right. Uh, other times, most of it we, depends on the actors. It did. Like, there's some places where, like, I know I had to, I have to rush uh-huh. so fast to get through uh, one of my narrations just to just to hit the mark. Uh-huh. And uh, actually, uh, Walter had to do the same thing for his year pretty monologue. But as we started rehearsing, uh, he felt, to be honest with it, he needed more time. Uh-huh. Uh, in, in 10, 15 seconds is a world of difference. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Daniel, uh, during the run, actually, after we opened, uh, recorded another version to help. To add 10 or 15 yeah. seconds. Yeah. yeah. So you haven't made your lives very easy. <laughs> <laughs> created a lot of constraints. And I do wonder if the reason that the, as I think of it, the duet, um, in the second act is felt kind of, I, I saw it so differently and saw it as so much more central. I mean, it clearly is. I don't know why it hit me so much. Well, I'm trying to get it. Why did it hit me so much more strongly in this production? And, and I think part of what I'm considering is that it's because it's, uh, it's a relief. After the um, the stylized nature of so much of what's gone before it, is there underscoring in that scene? Do you have the same issue of following the music? I uh, Jim does. Uh huh. Yeah. Laura, not so much. Uh huh. 
Yeah. I mean, we have little stuff in there, like pick up the, you pick up the, mm-hmm. the unicorn at a certain moment or something like that. Uh-huh. That's where the music starts, or you can hear the cues. But more of that is up to the stage manager to yeah. follow you than the other way around. Right. Right. Yep. right. I really lucked out on that part. Right. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, I think that part of, um, uh, you know, Hans directed this with so much, uh, uh, tension. Jim, when they finally meet and are kind of stuck in the room together, um, is, uh, it's, um, it's a relief, um, for the audience because they've been waiting for it. And it's a relief for Laura because, um, she has been fighting the outside world through the whole play. She mm-hmm. fights every time she has to leave um, the comfort of her apartment, and then the outside world comes into her uh-huh. apartment and uh-huh. into her home and into her life. And uh, it's something that she can't escape. Um, and uh, and um, it's something that's in the opening monologue of the play, um, talking about how Jim represents reality and all the other characters have kind of a reality that they were uh, set apart from is that right yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. um so uh when reality kind of invades her space um and she has to confront it um it's uh that's kind of a it's kind of a relief to have that kind of confrontation finally happen. Uh-huh. It's like it's been lurking out there and then finally it gets flushed flushed out sort of. Yeah. As playing Laura that's how it feels. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, do you want to go Hans back to the um to the screens which I hadn't known about the projections. Yes, yes, yes. Um and and I guess this is in the original script. It's in the original script. Cuz yeah. I've never seen it done before. Well, it's not in the original published version. He released this version. This was his original script. Um when it moved to Broadway, uh he had it taken out. Yeah. Uh I think the it was distracting, I think, for the actors that they had. Uh, they had, this was 1938? No, 44. Yeah, I, it was a long, long time ago. <laughs> right. Uh, and, uh, no, and, uh, it, it just pulled away from the Broadway performances. Um, uh-huh. I thought it'd be really interesting in a 50 seat non-equity house. I don't think that there was any ego that would think that the, that the screen device was, but, People uh, were going to be stamping their feet and saying, take, "I can't perform under these my, conditions." <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. That's exactly it. Uh-huh. Um, and I also thought that it's just—I thought it was way ahead of its time to have yeah. a screen device yeah. that has images and it has legends, screen legends, like a silent movie would. And um, those are all written by all written by specified by Williams. By Williams. Yeah. That's fascinating. I mean, I spent a little bit of time as I'm sitting there saying, "Is this Williams? Really?" Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know. Anna Henson is our projection designer, and she's just brilliant. And she uh, she actually made uh, the images. She she put movement to the images mm-hmm. um, versus uh, just using still Stills. photographs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was that is new. That's a new. that's new. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, she uh, I had mentioned. Is it possible, like to like to make uh, a rose bloom? I don't know because I've never worked with projections right. before. And she was like, "Oh yeah, that's a piece of cake." <laughs> when, she, when she came in, when she came in with her projection designs, uh-huh. we were just blown away. Yeah, yeah, uh, blown away. Which there's actually an amazing, if you don't mind saying, Walter, yeah. there's an amazing uh, tribute to uh, Walter's uh, grandfather. 
uh, in our projections. Uh, if you want to. Yeah. Uh, my, well, my grandfather passed away and we're in the uh, middle of rehearsals and we we're trying to have an image for Jim in high school. And, uh, we talked about it being a relative of mine. And then Hans was like, well, why don't we just use your grandfather? Oh, how so great. You know, my uncle, he sent me over a picture and then she popped it in and she did an amazing job with it. It's yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So that's it's, great to it's know. Really awesome. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, I mean, certainly in a production like this, which is already, as I've kept saying, stylized, I don't, I can't find a better word for it. Um, those it projections stylized. are, uh, much more at home than I think they would be in a, in some of the other productions of this play I've seen, where there's much more emphasis on the kind of naturalistic, which doesn't, I mean, Williams didn't write a naturalistic play, but it no. can be, it can be acted that way. And, um, as I say, in this production, some of it is. Yeah, a lot of times it is. It yeah. is acted. Uh, uh, I mean, while we're acting, it's naturalistic, uh, but we've really shaken up the world. Uh, uh, of the play. Of the play. Right. Where as a screen device, which be, which is, you know, a dirty old shower curtain uh, from the trash that gets hung up on a right. brick wall right. becomes, you know, this magical screen of images right. that are coming from our narrator. Right. It seems to work, I think. I'd be interested to hear from any of the three of you why you think this production has sort of struck a nerve. Do you have any thoughts about that, other than that it's really good? <laughs> just one possible answer. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I mean, I can say that just coming into this project, it was an idea that I hadn't heard of before. Yeah. You know, I've been... I mean, Hans, I mean, full disclosure, when Hans first told me, I was like, Glass Menager, are you kidding me? Like, right. Really? Everybody's doing it this year. And then, right. And, um, Enough already. Yeah. But uh-huh. then, um, and then, but then when you, I thought more about the concept of it, and like, you know, some people were really like, in Alley, that's, that, that doesn't make any sense, and it needs mm. to be like exactly what Williams wanted and all this stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, but the more we really, like, the, the whole schizophrenic idea and everything coming, coming from that really started to ring more true just throughout rehearsals. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I didn't even know, I came in not knowing about the, uh, focal point at all until I saw like the first round of it. And, right. um, it really took me. Because to you don't have back. to do it, you mean? Or? Yeah. Cause I didn't have to do it. Right. And I wasn't here for those rehearsals. Right. When I came in when we got to the point where I should be around and right. to do full runs. And then I saw that and it, was, it you know, it really took me back. Um, uh, just, it took me back for a second. Right. Um, I, I, yeah. So I think it really just, it puts it in new light. You yeah. Know? It's something that, you know, we all read it in, in like high school. Right. Um, and I've seen a couple productions of it and, but it was just, it, it I have never focused on the narration, Tom's narration before, right. before this production. Right. You know, usually I just sort of, I mean, maybe I'm not paying too much attention to whoever the actor was playing and maybe that's just a tribute to Hans, but it, um, I think it's beautiful, everything he's talking about, but, um, and it rings more clear in this production. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hans took a, a lot of chances, and I think um, with um, turning the actors out in Act 1 and giving us focal points um, uh, with how he staged it, um, directing and mm-hmm. casting mm-hmm. Um, himself as a character, I mean, there were so many chances that right. Hans took. Uh, um, and I think it's really... Um, exciting to see those chances work. Right, right. Um, You know, to see it come together into something that is um, really does feel like a complete production. 
Um, and I think that that is, um, part, that's certainly a, a big part of the thrill for me. Was there a time when any of the three of you thought, oh, crap, what, what were we thinking? Huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, I mean, tech, I mean this, uh, this show was insanely difficult to tech. I mean, there were wow. so many elements coming. There was, the, the, it's a lot, it's a lot more complicated than lights up, light down, right. uh, and sound cues, um, like integrating music into it and balancing it with screen projections mm-hmm. and with sound. Uh, and then, you know, and then the lights. I mean, we had, there's lots of different lighting that were, we don't really have the freedom, uh, because of our blocking and because of the conventions we're using to just kind of go anywhere. Uh, uh-huh. so there was, there was a time like the last, you know, two weeks of before we opened that I was sweating. This is going to be a disaster. Well, we also, gonna, <laughs> even during that first preview, been, you know, not, we didn't have all the, the elements were coming together and then but they just weren't all there yet. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And so that first preview was sort of, you know, we didn't know. The set, uh, the, the set is very intricate with just littered with a thousand glass bottles. And we could. On what's already a small stage. On so. what's a small stage. Yeah. Uh, and so the entire set is this menagerie of junk. And, uh, we didn't really have it until, uh, preview started. Uh-huh. So I had known what I wanted and I had been rehearsing on a blank stage with all these images in my mind. And I, there was that, there was a point where I was wondering if we were going to get there. Yeah. And I don't know if I was clear enough on describing it to everybody, uh-huh. uh, what we were actually going for. But it miraculously came together. (laughs) We're very happy. (laughs) Well, that's good. That seems to be um, what sometimes happens in the theater. Out of nowhere, it suddenly falls into place and people come. And enough people are coming to this that you're now extending um, several weeks. So so congratulations on um, such a successful show. And thanks for joining me to talk about it. Uh, Thanks so much, Anne. Thanks, Anne.